open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 1. We'll be there today. We are just starting a new series in the book of Acts called Unstoppable. Learning about the unstoppable gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit through God's people as it begins to make its way from those original disciples and apostles to Judea, Samaria, and ultimately the ends of the earth, beginning of the wonderful story. But today we'll be looking at chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 to 14, focusing on that section of, of the book of Acts. We learn about the beginning of continuing of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let's ask the Lord. Let's go before Him and ask Him to speak to us, to teach us from His Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for the book of Acts. We thank You for the wonderful truths here. We thank You, Lord, that You are interested not just in helping us understand the story, to understand what went on then in this particularly unique time, but also You are very interested in teaching us from this story from your word about life in you as your people in this time between the resurrection and the return of Christ. So, Lord, we ask you to come and be with us. Teach us. We need to learn from you, Lord, and your word is life to us. So pour out your spirit, Lord, on us. Be be your presence with us, amongst us. Come and do your work, Lord. I pray each and every one here today would be touched. Lord, would you help me to serve you and your precious people? Thank you so much, Jesus, for your blood and your forgiveness and power of the Spirit that we have and that I can have in you to serve your people. You are our confidence. Do these things. Be glorified in it, Lord. Amen. Amen. So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, beginning of this book, Luke says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his, after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Acts chapter 1, 1 through 14. This important introduction to the book of Acts really is a key for us, understanding and appreciating the whole book. We're going to be going through the whole book of Acts. I won't be touching on every single story, every single event. Within chapter 1, we have this section that we looked at. We also have a section following where Jesus, where 
Actually, Peter stands up and addresses the followers and talks about a replacement for Judas. That's an important section. I don't mean to say it isn't in any way by not addressing it. Uh, it was important that there be 12. It was important that they find a successor. Uh, it looks like, uh, well, Matthias is the one they chose uh, as their successor. The, the, I believe the legitimate 12th apostle. Um, if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you later. But, but we won't be touching on that. We'll just be looking at this first section this morning. Luke, I mean, Acts 1, 1 through 14. In this section, uh, there's, there's three things I want to talk about. I want to talk about keying off of verse 8, which I think is the key key part of this section. It's kind of the core. I want to talk about Jesus' command or his commission through this instruction here. I want to talk about the power of the Spirit. And I want to talk about being witnesses to the world. So it starts out, the way that Acts 1 starts out is, is Luke talks to Theophilus, introduces the book to Theophilus by saying, he dealt in his previous book, the Gospel of Luke, with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And then says, he says he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So in the introduction to the book of Acts, Luke says, Theophilus, I, you know, I told you about what Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up, and, and implying that this book is now going to be about what he continues to do and teach through his church. But he he says something there. He says that Jesus had given instructions, commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He actually says three times in this section, uh, three times he talks about the command that Jesus had given his apostles. So we see it first in the introduction to Theophilus, that he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. And then he says it again in verse 4, Jesus gives a command. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. So he, he talks about this command again. Jesus is commanding them to wait for the promise of the Father. And then the third time in verse 8, explicitly he lists what the command is. He, he, he tells them not to worry about the times or seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Luke mentions three times the idea that Jesus commands his apostles with some, he commands them to do something, he gives them some crucial information. So he says it in the introduction, he says it again, and then he actually says what Jesus told them, what that crucial command is. So three times Luke touches on this idea that Jesus, after he was raised, was with his apostles and told them some important information before he ascended. Three times he touches on that. Do you think maybe that that information, that command, the thing that Jesus was telling them to do is important? I think that Luke is maybe using that, saying three times Jesus commanded, he, he gave them instructions, and then he explicitly lists out what he says, that maybe we need to pay attention to that. Luke uses that device of repetition. He didn't have to write it that way. He could have told the story differently. But Luke told it this way, where he three times touches on this idea that Jesus gave important information to his apostles before he ascended into heaven. After he had been resurrected, he had been, he had been crucified, died for sin, rose again, and he spent 40 days visiting with the apostles. What an amazing 40 days that must have been. And then he ascended. And Luke says, but there was this important information, folks, and that important information is important for understanding the book of Acts. It's really, in some ways, Acts 1 verse 8 is a table of contents for the whole book. He's really talking about the, the content of the book. The content of the book of Acts really springs off of Jesus' important instructions to his people. And so understanding the book of Acts in some ways hinges on us getting this instruction, getting, up, getting this important command, getting verse 8. But not only understanding the book of Acts, but understanding the book of the church, the life of the church, what we are called to. Though this is a unique book, it's a unique experience, the very early church, some unique things went on. They're not, to meant, they're not meant to stand as unique and apart from our experience. They're meant also to be instructive for us. So this information 
This key statement in verse 8 is information for the apostles. It's information for understanding Acts. It's information for us. It's essential information. Key instructions for the church are found in what Jesus says in verse 8. It's essential information. Have you ever tried to do anything? Maybe put put something together on Christmas morning? Have you ever tried to go somewhere, do something without essential information? Have you ever tried to put something together that's very complicated without the instructions? Tried it and found out when you were done that there were some extra parts left over and you had to I've actually had to do that. I've had to take to take things apart, go backwards, back to the beginning, and start again. Or you you go somewhere, you think you know how to get there, you didn't bring a map, or you, your GPS doesn't work. Nowadays we cheat, we have GPS. But GPS is actually our there's some problems with GPS. Have you ever tried to do something without essential information? I, I remember uh, early on when our church was just starting, actually before we started in 2002, we had moved up here with uh, and our, our the original church planting team was kind of coming bit by bit, and there was a couple, that uh, wonderful couple, very enthusiastic about coming up here and being part of the new church as it started. And, uh, and we had already moved up and moved in our house, and they had arranged to come up, I think, on a Friday, uh, and, and he was leaving work early, and they, they got in their car, and they were going to drive up, and, um, and they were going to meet us. They were going to get here kind of late because they had left you know, later in the afternoon. It was going to be like 9 o'clock, and, and, we're, and they're excited about coming and scouting out the land with us, and we're excited about having them stay with us, and, and, uh, and it's 9 o'clock, and there's no friends. They're not, the, they're not here. I won't mention their name. Some of you may know who they are, um, but uh, there's, they're not there. 10 o'clock, still not there. We're wondering, what's going on? I mean, they should have been here by now. It, uh, it, it gets to be later and later, um, and it's, uh, I think it was around midnight or so, midnight, maybe even 1 o'clock, we get a phone call, and, uh, and it's a phone call. It's like, hi, Paul, how you doing? Hey, uh, we're having a little trouble here. We, uh, we can't find your house, and, uh, and, and, they, and I can't remember all the details, but you know, they're describing they're in this dark street, and there's no, you know, no 16 Alpine Drive on the street. It turned out that uh, they had piped in 16 Alpine Street, and, and it was using MapQuest. It had given them Alpine Street in Arlington, Mass. And they weren't from the area, so they didn't know. And they were, it was midnight. They got, I think they hit traffic, and they're, and they're on Arlington Street, on Alpine Street in Arlington. And if you look on Google Maps, it's, it's this dead end where 16 would be. And it was about 2 o'clock they finally got in to our place. Um, and it's funny now. It wasn't funny then, necessarily. But they were lacking essential information, weren't they? That it's Haverhill, Mass., not Arlington, Mass. And so they were all excited and expended all these efforts uh, to get here. And instead of being, arriving at 9 o'clock full of excitement to spend the evening talking about what we're going to do over the weekend, they got there at 2 o'clock and just like dragged themselves to bed and, and, and we went on our way later. We can be like that as believers. We can go about the business of the Christian life without essential information. And Luke has given us reason to pay attention to this central information here in Acts 1. He's repeated this idea of Jesus' essential command given to the apostles, given to His church for our benefit as Christians, as we live in this time. Certainly for the apostles, they needed to know this, but by implication for us as well. This information here in verse 8, is essential information for us as Christians if we are to understand what we are to be about and where we are to go. And if we don't pay attention, we might find ourselves at the metaphorical dead-end street in the dark as Christians instead of arriving at the destination God has for us. Acts 1.8 is essential information. They... They are given this answer in reply to a question they ask. They have been through an amazing 40 days. They had put their hope in Jesus as their Messiah. These were people who knew their Bibles. They knew the promises of God for the Messiah. And they knew that, that Jesus was fitting the bill 
and how he lived and how he taught and what he did. They knew he was the Messiah. They had put their hope fully in him. And they expected that he would fulfill all the promises. And partly because of their bias, their ethnic and national bias, they assumed that that meant that Jesus was going to ascend the throne in his lifetime and vanquish Rome and reestablish Israel and restore it and bring all the promises to bear that were in Scripture. They had put their hope in the Messiah and then they saw him basically hit the ultimate fail, the epic fail of the cross. The cross was the totally opposite of what they expected. Christ was crucified on the cross, utter, total defeat, and, and according to the law, he was cursed. Cursed as anyone who's hung on a tree. The Messiah had been cursed by God on the cross. He had failed every, in every way imaginable, and they were totally confused. They didn't know what to do. And they were just based on a defeat, and to their amazement and shock, on the third day, he appears alive. Alive. And, and can you just imagine their paradigm, their, their world, just the confusion, the shock, the joy, and we see some of that in, as we read the account in the Gospels. And not only did he appear alive, but he stayed with them. He would reappear over 40 days, and, and he, he, would, he would teach them about the kingdom and talk about the kingdom and and, ta- and explain what he had done. And, and, the, and it was just an amazing experience. Five, I think it's 500 people or so saw him. The apostles, the 12 apostles, as, as, as Paul calls them in 1 Corinthians 15, I think meaning Matthias as well, they, they saw him. It was an amazing experience. And so it's no wonder, as Jesus seems to be wrapping things up somehow, as he's instructing them, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, it made sense to ask that question because all this amazing stuff had happened and he had, he had been raised from the dead. He's alive. He's with them. And, and he's, I mean, he's in this glorified state too. It's wonderful. And they're seeing the promises in the Old Testament come to pass. And, and so it's natural to say, well, is this it? Are you now going to become the king? And, and restore Israel and do all that stuff that you promised? I mean, it, it, it's an obvious question. It's a good question. But it's not, it's not a complete question. It's an, there's a, a degree of ignorance in their question. Because, again, their bias as, as Jews, their ethnic and national bias, they thought that would mean that, that he would come and... and, and do it right then and vanquish the Romans. And they didn't get it. And actually, if you follow the storyline in Acts, even as things happen over and over again, they still don't quite get it all. It takes them a while to get it, that God certainly had fulfillment of all His promises in mind. But He had a plan. He had a plan. He had intentions that were different than what they expected. They expected it right away. They expected national Israel to be restored to the state of fullness, fullness in the kingdom of God. They didn't have an idea of the mission to the Gentiles, it looks like. They confused perhaps national Israel with spiritual Israel, not seeing that, that it's the people of faith that God was after. They didn't have the notion of process, but the goal. They missed so much of what Jesus' resurrection and reign means for the world and God's purposes. It was, wasn't a bad question. It was just an ignorant question. It was a question from their own bias. And maybe they should have just asked a more open-ended question like we should ask the Lord. Maybe they should have just said, Lord, what do you want to do? Here am I. I belong to you. Whatever you want to do, just tell me. I want to serve you. And those are the sort of questions the Lord wants us to ask. But sometimes we ask questions like they did. We ask questions that are really asking God to do what we want Him to do. So they said, Lord, are you going to at this time restore the kingdom? Because that's what we want. We want the kingdom right now. We want these Romans gone. We want all that fulfillment right now. Who cares about the Gentiles and the other mission? This is what we want right now. I don't even think they were thinking of that. And so they're asking Him a pointed question. And we do the same thing, don't we? Lord, would you please give me this new job? I want this job. Would you provide this job? Would you provide this 
home, O Lord. And there's nothing wrong with jobs and homes. But sometimes we we relate to the Lord like they did. We want something. We have a specific idea of what life looks like, it should look like. And we come to the Lord saying, Lord, this is what I want you to do. And our question isn't necessarily bad. It's incomplete. It's not saying, Lord, here am I. What do you want? What sort of job do you want me to have? What sort of home should I live in? What are you doing? How can I serve you? What are you doing in my church? How can I serve what you're doing there? Lord, here am I. Send me. And they missed it. We missed it. Thankfully, God is patient with the apostles and with us to answer our questions even when they're asked with the wrong goal. And so He answers their their question. He answers their question. He, He brings truth to them. He certainly had in mind the things that they wanted, but it was on a grander and glorious scale than they could have imagined. He had in mind certainly working through the Jewish people, but his plans were for spiritual Israel, comprised of not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Certainly he intended to deal with oppression, like the Romans brought, but he was interested in doing it in a bigger and broader way through through his suffering people, trusting in him amidst oppression, being faithful in his power, to remain true and to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And then at the end, to finally silence and deal with repression. Certainly God had desire to complete His kingdom work, to bring in a final gathering of the Jews, certainly, but to do that through a process where the kingdom expands and goes to all the world and brings in a harvest of all tribes and nations, tongues and people. God had something better in mind. He has instructions for us in line with those purposes. We need to listen to these instructions. We need to understand these things. We need to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And not predefine in some other way what it is to be a Christian. There are so many things we can give ourselves to as Christians. There's so many purposes that are that may be partially true, but not the ultimate fullness of what God wants for our lives. We can think to be a Christian, to to see the kingdom comes means that we just kind of pull in. As believers, we create our own enclave. We circle our wagons and we hold on till He returns. And that's not what Acts 1.8 says. Nothing there about circling the wagons and holding on till He returns. We might think that creating that the kingdom is to create some sort of better life for ourselves and one another, to have a more comfortable life, a higher quality of life. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, but that's not what Acts 1.8 calls us to. We might think the kingdom and, and being part of the kingdom is, is getting our end time charts out and figuring out what's going to happen. And is George Walker Bush the Antichrist or Barack Hussein Obama the Antichrist? And it's all about that. But that's not what Acts 1.8 says. Jesus says it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But, but, this is the information you need to know. This is the information you need to know. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be My witnesses. You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those are our marching orders for the time between His resurrection and His return. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you for the apostles in a unique first-time experience, and for every believer from that point. We receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us, and we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's what I want to talk about. These instructions. These key instructions that we must listen to and recognize as defining instructions for our lives as Christians. So first, we are to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Those so key that we understand this aspect. Before there's any starting of being witnesses, before there's any witness to the nations, there is the experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. And do you notice that, that Luke talks about commands that Jesus gives? He gives them commands, but, but in Acts 1.8, there's, there's actually not really a 
an explicit command? In other words, he doesn't say, do this. He says, this will happen. You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't mean to say that they were to be passive in that. I don't mean to say that they were just to sit down and and wait for God to get them on their feet going and doing what they're called to do. But God was saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to do this. The emphasis here in Acts 1.8 is what God, the activity of God in His people. The Holy Spirit coming and, and so affecting them with His presence and power that they become witnesses in who they are. To be His witnesses. And as witnesses in who they are, having experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the Gospel, under the sovereignty of God, they were, as witnesses, were to go and be witnesses. They would go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He is the one who's going to act. The command is implied to there, and really the command is to wait. To wait for the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father is clearly spelled out promise in the Old Testament that God would pour out His Spirit on His people and give them new hearts and fill them with power and this new ability to obey the law and from the heart and to, to hear God and to, to prophesy in His name. This promise that's found throughout the Old Testament from the Pentateuch throughout the prophets of this amazing promise of the Spirit of God poured out on His people Renewing them inwardly, defining them, remaking them, this, this experience of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing promise. And Jesus wants them to wait till this promise comes to bear for them. And it's from the fulfillment of this promise that they are witnesses. From this experience of the Spirit, this amazing promise. See, God is after something in Scripture. The promise of the Spirit is a fulfillment of a theme that's throughout Scripture from beginning to end. To be the people of God is to be people of the Spirit, to be people of the presence of God in us and amongst us. And that theme runs throughout Scripture. To to be His people is to be in intimate fellowship with Him. The highest good for humanity is to know God and to walk with God. To have Him dwell in us and amongst us. And so God, that, that purpose is in, it starts off in Genesis, in the garden. He, he makes a place for mankind to dwell, this royal garden for Him to, to rule over creation in fellowship with the Father. And then we reject that fellowship and sin and, and are exiled outside the garden. And then you see this theme of God drawing us back into His presence throughout Scripture. Ultimately, Jesus coming as the fulfillment of God's presence among us to, to, to rescue us from this exile. Atonement for sin, both in the Old Testament and its fulfillment in Christ, is, is, is about forgiveness. And forgiveness is a wonderful, amazing thing that God would, would send His Son to shed His blood for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins, these vile sins, that the, the, the sad reality that that though we see His goodness in creation, we see His goodness in provision, we see His goodness all around Him, that we turn from that to, to go our own way. We reject Him. That, that is the essence of sin. Saying, God, I don't want You. I want my way. And that leads to all sorts of sins in our behavior from, from mild to very severe, but all sin. The amazing truth that Christ would shed His blood for those sins will cause us to wonder for eternity. It's amazing. Forgiveness is amazing. But forgiveness is not an end in and of itself. The purpose of the atonement, the purpose of the wonder of forgiveness is to reconcile us with God. To bring us back into His presence. To, to remove this barrier that we've put up between us and God. To, to bring forgiveness, reconciliation so we can know God and walk with Him as it was planned in the very beginning. If, if you are here and you're human, God's desire for you is that you would walk with Him. And He sent His Son that you would find forgiveness in His Son. It's simple. All you need to do is say, I don't want anything more to do with my way and my sin. I want your way. 
You just need to turn and believe He is who He is. And He did what He did. And as you turn and do that and receive Him, you are forgiven and you are welcomed in to His family. Simple. That's why He came. But the purpose here is for fellowship. And so the promise of the Father is to give the Spirit that there might be intimate fellowship with God, that He might dwell in us, that we would know His presence and His life in us, and not just in us individually. We make that mistake sometimes to think that's the end. It's in us corporately. Those two go together. They're never to be separate. It's God's presence in us individually and amongst us as His people. That's the promise of the Father. That's what the Old Testament was alluding to. That's what Jesus is telling them to wait for, this promise of this new Life in the Spirit where, where the desires of God to be in and amidst His people in a powerful way and to transform His people will be realized. So next time when we hit Acts chapter 2, all those truths are coming to bear, are being fulfilled in what goes on at Pentecost. There's this wonderful new life in the Spirit. So before there's any witness, before there's any witness There needs to be power from the Spirit. Before there's any witness to the nations, there needs to be power from the Spirit. In order to be witnesses, there must be power from the Spirit. And if there isn't power from the Spirit, there's no witness and there's no going to the nations. The power of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, having transformed us, transforming us, empowering us, equipping us, making us like Christ individually and corporately, is all to create witnesses to the nations. Now, what went on here in Acts 1 and 2 and other parts of Acts is unique. There are no more apostles like the twelve. There there won't be. That that is completed. There's no more ministry quite like the apostles either. There's degrees of anointing, but I don't think there's anything quite like their ministry. And there's no more situation quite like Pentecost. Pentecost was unique. It was the initial fulfillment of the pouring out of the Spirit. Now, there are aspects in all of this, though, that continue. And it's important for us to understand that though this is unique in Acts, in the storyline, it's not separate from us. There are truths in it that apply to us. So we're not going to be looking for any apostles, capital A apostles, like the 13th apostle somehow is in our midst. We've got to find out who it is. We're not looking for an initial experience like Pentecost. It's once the initial is accomplished, there's no more. Everything's subsequent after the initial. So the, we're not going to do that, but there's a lot for us in this passage. And just as they were commanded to wait for the Spirit, though if you are a believer, when you come to Christ, the day you come to Christ, you receive the same impartation of the Holy Spirit that went on in, in Pentecost. So at at, at Conversion, we experience the Spirit. Though that is true, there is still a waiting on the Spirit that is to take place in our lives. Though we have this new covenant experience that the disciples hadn't yet had at this point in chapter 1, there is still a waiting on God we are to seek. There is still a dynamic with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes people hold to this truth that we've received the Spirit like they did at conversion. Therefore, there's nothing more we need to do, and that's not scriptural. There's still a waiting on God. There's still a dynamic. Yes, the Spirit is in us if we're a believer, but then we still need to wait. There's still a relationship with the Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit. We can quench the Holy Spirit as believers. The Holy Spirit is a person, God, the Holy Spirit. And there needs to be in our lives the same sort of waiting that went on here. And asking and expecting God to pour out His Spirit, to make us witnesses for Him. Our lives as Christians depend on the power of the Spirit. All our holiness, all our goodness, all our godly power, all our corporate and individual witness flows from the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not an optional member of the Trinity. It is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word of God is so, oh so important. I don't mean to neglect that in any way. It is how we hear the triune God speak to us and guide us and impart life. And, and we need the Word. We cannot live by the Word. But the Word is not a member of the Trinity. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the, the third option. We don't come to Christianity saying, yes, I check off option one. I like the Father. Option two, yeah, the Son. Eh, option three, Holy Spirit. I don't get that. No. 
Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will be my witnesses. It's the power of the Spirit. We must not shut out any person of the Trinity. Do we want power to be witnesses? Do we want to see the Gospel go to greater Haverhill? Do we want to see the Gospel go to the nations? Do we want to be a people that witness to His life and what we do and say, then get the power of the Holy Spirit. Get the Holy Spirit. Wait on the Holy Spirit. Access what is already yours in Christ. This experience, the life of the Spirit is in every believer now. And we are to wait and don't make the mistake of assuming that you have all you need in your experience already because the Spirit dwells in you. There's a dynamic. We see it in Acts. We see it in the Scripture of awaiting and seeking and experience. There's an ebb and flow. And we are asked the Spirit to fill us. We are to be filled with the Spirit. Peg and I uh, came to Christ uh, late teens. I was then the high school peg was starting college. And we started out our, our young Christian life uh, very well cared for. We loved the group we were part of. We were part of a fellowship on campus at UMass, the Navigators, and learned so much of the Word and the basics of fellowship and saw wonderful, so many wonderful things. But one thing that we didn't experience that much of was the third person of the Trinity. Father, Son were emphasized. Holy Spirit to a degree. I don't want to say we didn't. But the group... I think by definition and its theology, uh, didn't place the Holy Spirit and maybe the, the place that, that Scripture would call. So I don't want to speak for the navigators, or, but that was our experience just perhaps personally. We had a, had a good walk with God. We learned the Word. Good things went on. But it really wasn't until we got out of college and were part of a local church that we started to learn about the Holy Spirit. Now, we had the Holy Spirit. We experienced new life. We experienced new desires in us. But God wasn't done. The Spirit of God wasn't done with us. And He began to take us on a journey of discovering a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit that went on and still continues to this day. Now our journey falls far short. I read in Scripture, I read in history about experiences of the Spirit, and mine does not compare. I read about guys like D.L. Moody and, and the, the, the pouring out of the love of God in his heart, and then his increased effectiveness in evangelism. I, I read about Whitfield and John Wimber. I hear about missionaries and their experiences. Mine doesn't compare to that, but there is a difference that I've experienced in my life as I've begin, begun to learn to ask for the Spirit's power, to ask for the Spirit to fill me, to wait on the Holy Spirit when I'm in ministry situations instead of just giving the Bible verse that I know that may be a good verse, but to wait, Lord, what do you want me to do? we began to experience this new dependency on the Spirit. And that's what God wants for us. Our ability to be witnesses hinges on that. And, and Peg and I went through this wonderful season of beginning to encounter. I can remember, in many ways, it was like a new beginning with God. We were in our early 20s. We started to experience uh, deeper fillings of the Spirit, some new gifts, fresh faith and passion for Christ and His purposes. And began to to learn what it is, to depend on the Spirit. And, and I, I mean, I haven't arrived. I have a lot to learn, but, but I'm so glad for that teaching and for that right application, I believe, of Acts 1.8. I want to walk the walk. If I want to talk the talk. If I want to see life, lives changed, if I want to, to walk in integrity, I need, you need, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So Acts 1.8 applies to us. If we are if we are to be His witnesses. So we must receive the power of the Spirit to be His witness. It's interesting, again, that witnesses, He, he says he, he wants us to be witnesses, that we will be witnesses. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. What, what's a witness? You can answer this. It's not rhetorical. Someone who testifies. Someone who has who has seen or experienced something and talks about it, right? He wants to make us witnesses. He wants us to experience the life of Christ and the power of the Spirit to make us witnesses. That's at the core of being a witness is 
you have to be a witness. Right? I mean, in order to witness, you have to be a witness. You have to have experienced something in order to testify. That's the life of the Spirit, taking the Gospel, applying it to our lives, experiencing God makes us witnesses. Then, as we experience Him, and as His life is manifest in us, individually and corporately, then we can witness in our lives indeed. Back when Saddam Hussein was on trial for all the things he did, they called all sorts of witnesses to the trial to testify about what they had experienced under his reign. I'm sure positive witnesses and negative witnesses. I was a little disappointed, though, that they never contacted me to ask me to testify. Why didn't they ask me to testify? I had nothing. I didn't experience anything except for what I saw on the TV. I wasn't a witness, so therefore there was no reason to call me to testify. Witnessing flows from experience. It flows from what we've been through, what we've seen. Witnesses in a trial are those that went through something that's relevant. Witnesses for the kingdom are those that have experienced the kingdom and the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore have something to show for it and something to say about it. He wants to make us witnesses in the power of the Spirit. He wants us to be witnesses, to have a first-hand experience of His life and His truth. And not just individually, but corporately. Yes, there are individual witnesses in Scripture. We are called to be individual, but the, the accent in Scripture is corporately we are His witnesses. We are the people of God transformed and empowered by Him to be His witnesses. And therefore to witness. It's a natural aspect. We share what we've experienced. We communicate to others in life and deed what is important to us. So if we have encountered God by the power of the Spirit in the Gospel, we will be His witnesses. And this witness in Acts 1.8 It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The result of being his witnesses in the power of the Spirit is that that witness and the gospel with it goes out. To be a witness, to experience the the gospel, the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit automatically works. and it, It creates a desire to spread that, to bring it forth. So Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in these places, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And if you follow the the storyline in Acts, that's what happens. And it's not always because they say, yeah, oh, that's right, Jesus said to go to Samaria, so I'm going to go to Samaria. God sovereignly works on that. God pours out His Spirit on His people. They start to go outward. It starts with Pentecost. It goes from there. He directs them. But there's this, this propagation of this truth. There's this reality about encountering God and the power of the Spirit and the truth of the Gospel that propels us outward. To experience Christ is to experience His love and His glory in such a way that you are compelled to pass it on. To see it go. To taste and experience the goodness of God in Christ is to have this compulsion to spread it. Every believer has that. If there is no desire to see the Gospel go forward, this There's probably no experience, true experience, of the Gospel. To experience the Gospel and the power of the Spirit is to to want it to go, to want it to be proclaimed, to want to see lives changed and God glorified by it. That's part of what's going on in Acts 1.8. That's part of what goes on in the story. The Gospel comes and visits people and the power of the Spirit. It changes their lives and then they tell others and it goes on and God does things and it propagates and goes here and here and here and it does things and and amazing things in people's lives like the the life of Saul transformed by the Gospel, turned upside down, commissioned and sent and going and getting knocked down and going again and getting knocked down and going again. Why? Because the truth of the Gospel had affected his life. He was commissioned by Christ Himself and so he kept on going and bringing it outward. We are called as His people to do the same. The Gospel in the power of the Spirit is like, a, is like a hot potato. It's like the game of hot potato. In the game of hot potato, remember when we were kids, we had this little plastic potato. You wound it up and it would, it would make an unwinding sound and then it would go, bing! And that was the game of hot potato and you passed it. And, it. and the idea is you get in a circle, you pass it, and you try to get to the next person so that you're not left with it when it goes off. Well, in a good way, the gospel is like that. The gospel is given to us 
and, and, and in the power of the Spirit, we experience its goodness and we want to pass it on. To have it in our hands is to want to pass it on, is to be compelled to bring it, to share it with others. And when it goes off, bing, that's a good thing. We want it to go off in people's hands. But it's like that. And that's the storyline we see in Acts, is the Gospel propagating outward. There's this essential aspect of our instructions and our experience that of this outwardness, of being witnesses, of going with it. Remember, these are key instructions between His resurrection and His return. Be, with, be filled with the Spirit. Be my witnesses. Go places with me. Now, not everybody goes to foreign lands. And as we close, I just want to hit on, on a few things. Not everybody goes to foreign lands, but we all, as His people corporately, experience the wonder of the Gospel and participate in the mission of the Gospel going to foreign lands. Some of us might go ourselves. Some of us may stay. But there's always a going. There's a going locally. We have, as a church, lots of opportunities to go, to be witnesses to our neighbors, our friends, our family, to, through our testimony and deeds, to share the Gospel. We have wonderful opportunities like Alpha and VBS, Children's Ministry, Loaves and Fishes. We talked about this. Things we're trusting God for like a healing service, a gospel-centered recovery program, and countless other ways for the gospel to go. There's plenty of opportunity here in our Jerusalem for the gospel to go. And we, as His people, if we are going to heed the instructions Jesus gives in Acts 1.8, we are going to live in this reality. We are going to seek for ways to get the gospel out. It also goes to Samaria, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And we are to be involved with that. We're not to separate the two. We have to be involved beyond our Jerusalem. And just as we close, I have three suggestions for us. Ways that we can be involved. First, I'd like to, to ask everyone to think about ways to be involved. One, three ideas that I think would be good. To, to be involved with the going of the gospel, the spreading of the gospel. Get involved with a, an organization like Compassion International. Uh, they are an organization that's bringing the gospel to the nations and to the children of the world. We, uh, I know some of you do this already. There's also a great group called Covenant Mercies within our family of churches that cares for, sponsor, for orphans. You can sponsor an orphan. In Compassion, we have our uh, child, Ronnie Curry, and uh, she's being cared for and evangelized, and we're getting letters from her, and they're so precious to get these letters and to hear about her life. And uh, that's a joy. One way to, for us to do this, and I know your heart is to do these sort of things, Another way we can do it, too, is to sponsor somebody who is going in some capacity. So uh, one, one great idea is our own Annie Havisto, who has gone uh, to serve with Mercy Ships in Africa and serving people uh, in Africa who need medical care and spiritual care. And these guys are doing a wonderful job. So you can get on, uh, you can talk to her mom and dad here, get on her blog and find ways uh, to sponsor her. We as a church are, are doing that and handling the funds to, to Enable her to serve in this way. A third way, too, uh, is to get involved in, in some sort of church planting venture in the ends of the earth in some way. So we as a family of churches uh, have some exciting opportunities with church planting in the world right now uh, in Burma. Uh, there's, uh, there's church planting going on. They're, they're doing some church planting with an unreached people group up the Irrawaddy Delta. And how fitting to partner with a group like that, when the, the first American missionary was sent right from right here down the street to Burma, to the Irrawaddy Delta, to bring the gospel. Uh, we're seeing churches planted there. And so you can sponsor someone through Sovereign Grace uh, that goes to church planting in the Irrawaddy Delta. There's all sorts of things we can do. I don't mean to, to limit us. But, but the, as the band comes up, as we close, this key instruction in Acts chapter 1-8 must resonate in our lives. We must heed this essential information that we are to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to experience the Holy Spirit. And as a result of the experience of the Spirit, we are to be His witnesses. And we are to take that witness to the nations. In our Jerusalem here, Judea and Samaria, these are the essential instructions for us as His people. This is what we're called to between the resurrection and His return. May we respond to Him and what He teaches us in Acts 1.8. To see His purposes fulfilled, our lives full of joy. To see the kingdom come 
as we labor in these ways. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the disciples wanted to see Your kingdom come and they had a specific way in mind that that was to happen. And You had other plans for them. And You gave them instruction about how You were going to propagate the kingdom. You told them that they were to receive power when the Spirit comes on them and that they were to be witnesses to the world. Lord, those things are for us as well. Lord, you're building your kingdom. and We want to learn how to do it. So help us learn, Lord. Some of us need to learn how to better rely on the Holy Spirit. Some of us need to recognize that perhaps functionally we have lived with only two persons of the Trinity and not relied on your Spirit, not sought your ministry, Holy Spirit, not asked for more. We have come like the disciples asking questions that are pointed in the wrong direction instead of saying, Lord, here am I. Do what you want. Holy Spirit, here am I. Fill me and commission me and use me however you want. Lord, may some here, even today, pray that prayer for the first time. Come Holy Spirit, do whatever you want in and through me. I am yours. Lord, we ask you to make us witnesses in every way that we would be like Christ. We would model Christ corporately, individually, to the world, both in our character and our deeds and what we say and how we live. And Lord, that you would propel us outward. Lord, there's so much to be done. Would you use us? Would you empower us? Would you provide the resources, God, that we might fulfill Acts 1-8 in our little bit of segment of it, not because we're great, but because you are. You yourself have commissioned us. We pray in Christ's name. Let's all stand as we sing, Let your kingdom come, Lord. Amen.